Let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father, we're thankful again for this gift of salvation that we have, not because of human merit, but because of Christ's merit. Not because we've earned it, not because we've deserved it, but only because Jesus Christ finished that cross work and in love has made it available to us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who illuminates our heart and enables us, therefore, by the illumination to know the truth. And therefore, we can trust you that you have a faithful character to fulfill all of your promises. We pray now that the long-range promises of history will be foremost in our mind, that you would guide us to clearly think through the eschatology of the scriptures. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Last time we uh, went back through some of the um, larger considerations so that when we get into these details, you won't lose the forest for the trees. Again, um, I preface my comments that we are in a difficult area of Scripture. Um, Eschatology, as we've said, uh, is being worked out last century and this century. Um, It appears to be working out pretty well, but there are divergences of views, even among those who are believers in the Lord um, and Bible-believing Christians. So last time I mentioned, uh, kind of reviewed for you, Uh, the difference between the church and Israel. And this is a fundamental distinction. And to that, we can add a third distinction, Israel and the Gentiles, the Gentile nations. So we actually have three groups in the scriptures. And the problem in biblical interpretation is to understand God's purposes with each of those three groups. God has a purpose for Israel. God has a purpose for Gentile nations, and God has a purpose for the church. And so we surveyed that. We gave you uh, the, the history of the world. We said it starts out with innocence. It starts out in an unfallen universe. No sin, no death, no suffering. Um, no, no sin, no judgment for sin. And this period of time in here when Adam and Eve after creation until the fall during that period of time there was an instance of a sinless environment and yet even in that even in that sinless environment uh, we have people sinning man chose to fall in a sinless environment so that reveals the fact that sin is not environmental. Fundamentally, sin cannot be explained away as environmental. Now, we have all kinds of people that still think this way. Well, so-and-so was raised in a bad home, and that makes them bad. So-and-so had all the breaks when they were kids, and that makes them good. It doesn't work that way. And one of the most interesting social examples of this is that during the Depression, when people were suffering, as, as we haven't suffered probably uh, in the 30s, hadn't seen that kind of suffering in the country in 100 years, when people were suffering the Depression, the interesting thing is crime did not go up. 
Now, if poverty and economic suffering cause crime, how do you explain the fact that the crime didn't go up in the Depression? It didn't go up because there was a basic ethic still left in, in the centers of the American population. Now, of course, today, if we had suffering, it would be interesting to see if crime would go up. But, but the point is, the, the basic idea, and this is, the, this is the point I'm trying to make, is as you go through these different ages in history, there are big ideas that you want to grab onto and use those ideas to control your thinking. So your thinking will be biblical when everybody around you is falling apart, going off on tangents, and uh, have, having problems, or doing some systematic foolishness that leads to worse kind of mistakes. So this, this period of history was innocent. Then we had the period from the fall down to the flood. And during that period of time, man had no government, no capital punishment, no police. It was all human conscience. God allowed human society to function that way, to prove a point. It doesn't work. In a fallen world, you can't just contain sin with human conscience. You need the power of forceful judgment against sin. And that's the argument for all people who want to do away with capital punishment. There was a whole history here of 1,600 years when there was no capital punishment, other than what was administered by angels for some reason, maybe. But by man, it wasn't. And what happened? Society fell apart, had total violence filling the earth, and so God had to remove that, that society. Then we come down from the flood down to Abraham. And now we have human government. God gives revelation to every single people group on earth. There's nobody, there's no missions, no missionaries, no need for missionaries because every society has access to the Noahic Bible. They all came off the same boat. They're all sons and daughters of Noah. They all heard the story. Grandpa told, told Daddy, and Daddy told me. It was passed on down through the families. So everybody had access to Revelation. Did that work? No. Because what do we have? We have man trying to define himself. There came a point in this age when we had the great Tower of Babel. And at the Tower of Babel, you have an attempt by corporate man to form a world government that would be so powerful as to define the nature of man. Remember what they said in Genesis 10? Let us make a name for ourselves. And when God elected Abraham, he deliberately took the same vocabulary and he said, I will give you the name. Never mind making the name up yourself. I will give you the name. In other words, God defines purpose and meaning. Here, man wanted to define purpose and meaning, and God had to shatter the culture of the world. So now he broke the world up into linguistic subgroups that can't understand each other. People say, oh, it would be so good if we could just get rid of the language barriers. Would it? If you get rid of all the language barriers, you have no resistance to sin affecting us globally. At least with language barriers, you'll have some areas that can't be influenced by sin over here because these people can't understand what these people are saying. 
So there's built-in barriers. And so you have the rise of nationalism. Today, everybody wants to get back to internationalism or to globalism. But that is refuted by the Tower of Babel experience. It doesn't work. So then we come to Abraham, and here we have the rise of another controversial time, and that is the rise of the need for missionaries. Because now God restricts revelation to one culture. Now, the anthropologists and sociologists and all the people on campus hate that kind of idea that one culture could possibly have the truth and all the other cultures are deprived of it. How unfair, they say. Well, no. All cultures had the truth prior to that point and paganized it, perverted it, distorted it. So, we have a period from Abraham on when, now, God is going to reveal himself through only one culture. And that means if it's only in one culture, but there are men in many cultures, you have to get the truth from the one culture out to the many cultures. And how do you do that? Missionary work. That's the need for cross-cultural evangelization. Now, that is, that's very offensive in our day to moral relativists. The idea that one culture could have the truth. Well, sorry, that's the way it is. Not because that culture is better. It's only because God works that way because when we have the truth and distributed evenly in all the people's group, it didn't work out. So then we come now to the nation because Abraham had a family and the family was one of the most dysfunctional families that you could imagine. And out of that came a nation. And so now we have the period of the nation of Israel. And what that period of history shows is what happens when God designs a society to live in a fallen universe. And he puts his presence in physically and politically inside that social unit. What happens then? Well, what happens is what you got with here in Israel. And within the history of Israel, you have other great ideas that nobody thinks of. Nobody thinks there are any big ideas in the Bible, so therefore they don't think these things through. But if you go back through Old Testament history in this time period of the nation, what do you find? You find the period of the judges, for example. Now, what does the period of the judges teach us about society and politics? It teaches us, the book of Judges, that where you have limited government, which conservatives like for, because of the sin issue, but the libertarians, who are not necessarily Christians, libertarians who are almost anarchists, don't want any government authority. Everybody should do whatever they feel well, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody. Never define what it is that hurts or doesn't hurt someone, but nevertheless. So they go forward with this libertarian idea, and the Book of Judges is the libertarian idea worked out in history. And what happened? It failed. Because every man did what? Did what was right in their own eyes. Who defines right? And so therefore, then you go from almost anarchy to the other extreme. And what is the other extreme known as in history? You have anarchy on one side and chaos. And you have on the other side totalitarianism of various forms. And so you have that shift, and you have the introduction of a monarchy. And one of the great political chapters in the Bible, never taught in school, of course, because public schools don't want to have to carefully filter out anything that might be possibly construed to talk about God. One of the things that in the Bible that is a very politically 
crucial chapter is 1 Samuel 8. Nobody even reads 1 Samuel 8. 1 Samuel 8 is an exposition by the prophet Samuel of central power, central government, and the problems of a totalitarian structure in society. And you read it, he even predicts what the tax structure is going to be in a totalitarian society. So these are all key things. Then you come down and you have this nation that has God's law behind it. We look through the law of the Old Testament. We can find social legislation, economic legislation, banking rules, currency rules, public health rules, the whole nine yards of a totally uh, God's will specified in every area of society. New Testament, by the way, doesn't do that. Only the Old Testament specifies social legislation like that. And so you have a nation here, and it is totally prepared. It has the maximum amount of information of any nation in history. And when God himself walks into that national society, he gets crucified. Now, what does that show? That shows that unless the change is by regeneration inside the human heart, you cannot make a perfect society by law structures. You can't create a perfect society because it's all external. What all that happens is you create one big peer pressure. And -and so-and-so is good as long as the peer pressure is there. Take away the peer pressure and they fall apart. This is why people always say, oh, well, my son went in the military and, oh, he went to, to the pot. Well, if he went to pot because he joined the military, it's not the military's fault. The problem is he never had it together in the first place. And he was around peer pressure, and in the military he had a different kind of peer pressure. He responded to the new kind of peer pressure. Before he had the Christian peer pressure, now he has the pagan peer pressure, and so he responds to that. He's just peer pressure driven. So nothing's changed. It's the same guy. But they always want to blame the military for it. Actually, the military is a great place to learn discipline and responsibility. And that's why we have so little discipline and so little responsibility today, because nobody knows anything about the military. We have congressmen, probably two out of every three congressmen ever been in the military, don't know a clue about it. And now here we are, almost in two wars, don't have enough military to go around, because for 15 to 20 years, we have robbed the Defense Department budget, stolen it, run by a group of jerks in our country who themselves have never had to go into battle and defend themselves. And so now we pay the price. And it's going to be a national embarrassment because we have no training, we have not enough weapons, and we have neglected and neglected and kept the budget down, kept the budget down, and now we're going to pay the price for it. So that's what happens. That's foolishness. Policies will always reap their results. You have to learn that way. Fallen man always has to have his nose rubbed into it before we ever learn anything. And actually, it's the same thing in the church age, because now down in the church age, God says, I'm not going to work with a nation anymore. Now I'm going to work with individuals. But here's the difference, and this is a difference that you've got to grasp if we are to interpret correctly these prophetic passages. You have got to understand the difference in the definition between Israel and the church. During this period of time in the Old Testament, 
God worked with the nation Israel. The prophecies concern the nation. Yes, it does talk about the remnant. But, for example, in the Old Testament, it talks about the new covenant. Now, the new covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and referred to in other passages, is a promise, a prophecy of a thing in the future that is going to occur to the nation. All the nation will be regenerate. Yes, it means the unregenerate will be destroyed from that nation, but at one point in the future there will be 100% of the population believers. That's the New Covenant. The New Covenant is not given to the church. The New Covenant has, in this regard, has nothing to do with the church. It is a prediction of the state of a society, of a national entity called Israel. It will be regenerated. That is the New Covenant. Now, when we come to the church, we come to an utterly different thing. What have we done as we reviewed, in, for example, the book of Acts? When we think back to how the church started, what was the church? The church was a subset, was it not, of Israel at first? Wasn't it all made up of Jews? Of course it was. But what characterized that Jewish nucleus that first formed the church? How would you characterize those Jews in the book of Acts who believed in Jesus Christ over against the rest of the nation Israel? Well, they're the remnant. They are the subset of the nation that did believe in the Messiah and did not reject him. So from the very first, the church was minus. It was not an organization. It didn't have any organization at first. It was just a group of people who responded to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church as such is not to be identified with an organization. It is not to be identified with a nation. What happened on the day of Pentecost? Were multiple national people groups represented? What's the lesson from the very day of Pentecost? They spoke in what? Many different languages. From many different people groups. What's that a signal for? You know, God sends signals. He says, hey guys, wake up. We've got a new thing here. What's the new thing? The church is going to be something that was never revealed in the Old Testament. It is going to be one body made up of believers only from multiple people groups. So you have this definition of the church. It is not an organization. It is not a nation. It is not a race. It is not one language. It is people from all of those who are in this union together because they bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. They can be black, they can be white, they can be red, and they can be yellow. Doesn't make any difference. Because all of those people ultimately came from the same boat. Noah's family. So the church then is defined as those people who have received Christ. Now down through, church, down through history now, the church has taken on different identities. And we want to be careful about this. And that's where dispensational theology clarifies the issue. Because one of the problems is that when the Protestant Reformation occurred, well, let's go back before the Protestant Reformation. Let's go back to Roman Catholicism and, and Greek Orthodoxy. 
both Greek Orthodox, which is the eastern part of the Mediterranean, that part of the church, it became the Russian Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, and a bunch of other little Orthodoxes. But usually you can always tell them, but the architecture has a very distinctive architecture. That's the eastern side. In the west, you have Roman Catholicism. So you have these two groups. Now, what's characterizing these two groups? Well, they tried to become Orthodox in deciding about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because remember, church history, what was the doctrine that was being fought out, clarified in those first centuries? It wasn't salvation. It was the person of Jesus Christ, the hypostatic union, and the doctrine of the Trinity. And that's a good place to start, because if that's wrong, everything else is going to be wrong. And we see and observe that the Holy Spirit, being the great teacher he is, he has a pedagogical purpose to church history. So the church first spends a lot of time. And how did it learn about the Trinity and the person of Jesus Christ? Because of heresy. The church never learns voluntarily. We always have to get it slammed into us with some heretical movement. The wolves have to nip at the sheep before the sheep move. That's not a good commentary about our character, but that is the way the church learns. It learns the hard way through persecution and apostasy. So early on, the church was looking at that area. What the church wasn't looking at was its own identity. So very early in church history, we have the idea that the church is an organization. They knew enough to know it wasn't a nation. But it took on the idea that it was an organization. So you have a great emphasis on offices, the bishop, and then finally the super bishops, and then finally the pope. And it was the structure that was formed. And that became identified as the church. Then when most people's minds, what did that organization do? It built buildings. Now, the buildings are defined as the church. Go to the great cathedrals of Europe. That's the church. Well, no, that's not the church. This isn't the church. The church is the body of Christ. But that hasn't always been clear. People have confused buildings, organizations, and everything else for the church. And this went on even to the Reformation. Because the Reformation was interested in what area of doctrine? And this is where you you have to know your church history. What was the emphasis in the Reformation? Soteriology. So the reformers were concerned with how does a person get saved? What what did Jesus do on the cross? How do I trust him? What is the gospel? Those were all crucial questions. They had to be dealt with. It took took hundreds of years to deal with those questions. But what wasn't dealt with in the Reformation? Nature of the church and where it's going. The purpose and history and what history is doing. The reformers simply repeated the eschatology and ecclesiology of Rome. That's why in Europe, what church dominated Germany? Begins with L, the Lutheran church. What church dominated England? Begins with A, the Anglican church. And so what church dominated Italy? That was the Roman Catholic church. And in Switzerland, it was the Reformed Church. In Holland, it was the Reformed Church. So the Protestants carried on the idea that there was an organization that should dominate a community. 
Now watch, watch what happens here. Let's take a, a town. We'll call it Town X. And this was true of the Puritans here in New England. So we have this town. Men, women, children, all in this one town. The idea was that this town would be part of Christendom. And as part of Christendom, your citizenship in the town was simultaneous with being part of Christendom. So what did everybody in the town have to do when they were babies? When a baby was born in the town, what happened to the baby? He would be christened, he would be baptized, and brought into what? Into Christendom. And so you have identity where the church is not, not distinguished carefully from society at large. And you have, therefore, example worked out in American history. What happened in Massachusetts in American history that set up Connecticut and Rhode Island? Anybody know about that little element of American history? Who was it that went down and formed Connecticut because they couldn't get, they got kicked out of Massachusetts colony? Hooker. Who was it that went into Rhode Island? What? Roger Williams. Why did those guys have to go to Rhode Island and another guy had to go to Connecticut? Because they weren't welcome in the Massachusetts. Well, why weren't they welcome in Massachusetts? Because they taught a different doctrine. If you want to teach a new doctrine, you've got to go to another town and you take care of that town. See what was going on? It wasn't emphasis on individuals becoming Christians. The emphasis was communities becoming Christians. And, of course, this is all tied in with infant baptism because that goes along with it. Infant baptism is, is like your citizenship in the community. And, and so this, this came out of the Reformation. Now, when dispensation, and of course now there were the Anabaptists during the, during the Middle Ages who carried forward a tradition that Anabaptism, let's look at that word, Anabaptist, the word Anna means again. And what they came to was that the church, they were right here. They had a lot of wrong ideas in the sense that they were undeveloped ideas and they got involved in radical different things. But one good idea they had was, wait a minute. First of all, we don't see infant baptism anywhere in the New Testament. The justification for infant baptism is an analogy with what in the Old Testament? Circumcision, which was done to infants. But what a, wait a minute. Circumcision was to Israel, wasn't it? Was Israel a nation and a community and a town? Yes. And so you did. That was the mark of parting part of the nation. Circumcision. So, carrying that same idea into the church, infant baptism. Analogy. The problem is the analogy fails because Israel is a nation and the church isn't a nation. It isn't a community. It is a subset of individuals who have received Christ, as we could have seen in Acts chapter 2, when they were not part of the Jewish community, were they? the Christians began to break away from the community on the basis of their personal decision to trust in Jesus Christ. So, the Anabaptists had the idea that you had to be baptized again when what occurred? Just think about it for a minute. Anabaptists. 
baptized again. Why would you be baptized again? Well, first of all, because if you grew up in this, these towns and communities of Europe, you already ha had what from infancy? You already baptized once, weren't you? Infant baptism. Well, then what were the Anabaptists talking about? When you grew older and you got conscious and you trusted the Lord as a personal, knowledgeable, conscious decision, then you were baptized. And that's why they were called Anabaptists. And then that dropped off and you get this name goes away and that's the rise of the Baptists. And these people, unfortunately, got involved in all sorts of extreme movements. And there were some eschatology distortions. And they were into uh, things that amounted, on one hand, like communism and, and uh, anarchy on another. Luther had it with him, and so he ordered the people to shoot them all. And so the reformers decided to go after them physically. So the Anabaptists were persecuted all over Europe by both Protestants and Catholics. They roll them in barrels. Very cruel. Very, very cruel to the Anabaptists. And, um, but the Anabaptists, in some of their areas, they were just idiots and stupid because they got involved in these revolutionary movements. And that's why Luther would have nothing to do with them. Well, enough of that. My point being that this all comes down to defining, uh, clarifying uh, what the church is. And that has been clarified very clearly inside dispensational theology. Because in dispensational theology, the church is defined clearly from the very start as made up of all believers and no unbelievers. If you have a congregation, and we always will have a congregation that's mixed, the congregation ultimately is not the church. And therefore, people have devised two words, two vocabulary words, to describe this problem. You have a hundred people in a local church, okay? Regular attendees at a local church. Can we be sure that all hundred of those people have personally trusted in the Lord Jesus? No. What do you do? You keep preaching the gospel and teaching the word of God so that one or the other thing happens. Either they trust him, or they get so irritated hearing the word of God that they get out and go home, stay away. It either softens hearts, or it hardens hearts. Or puts them to sleep so they aren't hardened or softened. So, you have the church invisible. And that's a term sometimes you'll see, the visible and the invisible church. Those are just terms that theologians have come up with to try to distinguish this, this problem. In a congregation of 100 people, there might be, uh, say, 91 believers and 9 unbelievers. So the visible church has 100 people in it, but the invisible church there only has 91 people in it. So that was the terminology that was devised to describe that. Now... We're going to come down to treating the church's destiny. Not a nation's destiny, not an organization's destiny, but this group, this group of believers in the Lord Jesus' destiny. Now on page 120 of your notes. We're now going to start the first of five attempts in our present day to explain where the church is going in history. What's our future? I've already said, pages 119 and 120 of the notes, that there are certain future milestones we know about. I named one on page 119, 
the rapture. So we're talking about the future of the church, and we said that one thing is going to happen is the rapture. Now, what is the rapture? The rapture is re two things. It's resurrection, and it is transformation. Who are resurrected and who are trans transformed? Okay, they're all believers, but dead believers are the ones going to be resurrected, and living believers are the ones going to be transformed, so that when this then is over, both of these people are in what kind of bodies? They're in resurrection bodies. Okay? So the rapture leads to an event where 100% of all believers have resurrection bodies. Okay? Because all believers who live on earth at that point when the rapture happens, by definition, are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and the rapture occurs, then all at, split second after that event, we're 100% resurrection bodies. Okay? Now, another milestone for the church beside the rapture is the Bema Seat. And the Bema Seat speaks of a judgment. And that means every believer is judged on the basis of his or her works. And what that does, it splits away human good from divine good. Good done with the filling of the Holy Spirit in obedience to the Lord, genuine fruit of the Spirit will be identified and rewarded. But where we have done things because of social pressure, peer pressure, because I want to impress my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my husband, my wife, whatever, all the other false motives, just a lot of trash and human good. It may look on the outside like it's a great spiritual thing, but actually it turns out to be nothing more than wood, hay, and stubble. And that's going to be burned away because God, the Lord Jesus, when once we get resurrected bodies, he wants to have the church do something. And the church is going to do something in the future, and it's not going to do it unless it's clear about the whole nature of the church. So what the church has done down through the centuries, all the good works, have to be clearly identified to qualify the church for this duty that is going to come about. And the, the, the result is that the Bema seat sets up a ranking of believers. Some people are going to be down here, some people are going to be up here, some people are up there, based on production and fruit in their Christian life. And they are given certain assignments. Some of us are going to be down here, we'll be saved, but we'll have, you know, we're the custodians of the kingdom or something. And the next layer of people will be something else. So, the, the Bema seat sorts this out. Thankfully, we don't have to do it. The Lord Jesus does that. And then the third thing that the church goes through is this marriage feast. And that is the church is the bride of Christ. And at the marriage feast, all of creation at that point now views the Lord Jesus Christ plus the church, which is his body, as one unit. So the marriage feast brings together 
the Lord Jesus, who is perfect in his resurrection body, plus the church, which has been purged of human good in its resurrection bodies, and we have the church ready to do something. Okay. Now, what these five positions try to do is sort out event number one, event number two, event number three, and mix these in, somehow fit them in to the plan we see developed out of the Old Testament, which is not in itself wrong. God has, uh, is a God of coherent logic. He thinks together. He doesn't, his plan isn't messy. He has logic and coherence. And so, therefore, the question is, those three milestone events that are to happen to the church now have to be fit in to the program inherited from the Old Testament. So what does the Old Testament tell us about the future? The Old Testament tells us that Israel, as the chart, Table 8, we've gone back to Table 8 any number of times in the notes. In the Old Testament, we have the view that in the future, Israel and the Gentile nations will go through a horrible time of suffering called the Tribulation. And that tribulation is not the same kind of suffering the church age presently goes through. This is a special suffering period which has as its purpose to bring out belief and unbelief. So we have those people who are positive, those people who are negative within Israel, within all the nations of the earth, in order that Jesus Christ will set up his kingdom. This is the kingdom of God, and it will be start out with people who are believers. It will go for a thousand years, according to Revelation chapter 20. And that kingdom is going to demonstrate, in the future, another point about human history. Because over and over, man has always tried to excuse himself by saying we have lousy leadership. The reason society fails is because we got the wrong people in office. So every time the Republicans get in, the Democrats say that. Every time the Democrats get in, the Republicans say that. In other countries, it's whatever the parties are. It's always the outs and the ins. And there's always a perpetual debate over the fact that we have lousy leaders, and that's the problem. Now, what do you suppose God is going to do for a thousand years to solve that little innuendo? He's going to bring about perfect leadership globally. And that perfect leadership is the Lord Jesus Christ and his royal family as administrators. And that family is going to produce, which we'll get into later, the idea of a society. And by golly, after a thousand years of perfect leadership, what's going to happen? Satan will be released because he is a deceiver of the nations. He's going to be kicked out for 999 years or whatever. And just as soon as he is let loose, again, it doesn't take him but months to screw the world up again. And it's not just him that's doing it. It is these people all through the kingdom down here who have not done what, do you suppose, while they've had the presence of Jesus there. Haven't believed. So as the thousand years goes on and on and on and on, there arises a segment of the population 
who are not believers. They're people born after the kingdom starts, and they grow up, and they don't trust in the Lord Jesus. So now what do we got? Now we've got an increasing segment of people here who are on negative toward the Lord Jesus Christ. What controls them? Peer pressure and law and power. What does the Bible say that Jesus rules those nations with? A rod of iron. Now you think about that. Jesus is going to be the world dictator. And when he rules, he rules by force. Gentle Jesus rules the world by force for his kingdom. By the way, he has capital punishment. And he doesn't even talk to the ACLU about it. So we come down now to the end of the kingdom. And then we have the final purge, and the universe is completely replaced by a new universe, and we go into the eternal state. That is the final separation. History is over, and every grand experiment that man could ever think of, forever and ever, has been done. Because history is the vestibule for eternity. So that when, in eternity, we worship before the throne, we can never, no matter what happens, we can never in those eternal eons of time to come, we can never say, doubt God's goodness and say, well, God, you know, there were better ways to run history. Because every time we think that way, we'll be confronted with a chapter of history. Every idea that we can come up with will be answered come out with, I'm a libertarian. Read the book of Judges. I'm a Marxist. Globalist. Read the Tower of Babel, Genesis 10 and 11. And go on. That, you get my point. History is, is a completing an experiment and a demonstration of the depravity of man and the faithfulness and goodness of God such that all arguments will be silenced. There will not be any arguments. The suffering argument will not surface in the eternal state to come because it will have been answered. So the point is, how do we take the church with a rapture, the Bema seat, and the marriage supper and connect it with this? That's why in page one. Uh, 120 on the notes, the big heading there is the church and the tribulation. Because the tribulation is the inherited, undone yet agenda out of the Old Testament. Now the first attempt, which is actually in its modern form quite recent, it goes back into church history in a crude form, is called preteritism. And we're going to start about preteritism tonight. And I want to define the word and get you used to it because people you hear on the radio are, some of them, that are in our local Christian radio station, are preterists. And they're teaching the Bible from a preterist viewpoint. And you better understand what kind of viewpoint you're getting. So let's talk about what the word means first. You cannot think without words. 
And I better spell it right. Preterism. And I'm going to give you the opposite word. It always helps to learn words by contrast. It's this against that. The opposite of preteritism is futurism. Now that I've made that opposite, what do you think preteritism is all about? If futurism is future, preteritism is past. Ah, that's the big difference. So basically what the preterists are doing is they're saying that this Old Testament stuff all that tribulation talk about Israel and the Gentiles is what? Past. It's all over. You say, what? All over? The tribulation has happened? When did it happen? The preterists today, now, early preterists, centuries and centuries ago, early preterists believed that the church was already in the tribulation. They had Roman emperors and so on. And what was the great event in history when finally the church was relieved of its suffering and persecution under Rome? Remember the Roman emperor? Constantine. So after Constantine declared Christianity to be the official religion of Rome because all the other religions fell apart, Rome was falling apart, when that happened, the church said, we're out of the tribulation. Now, at least we have peace. And that led to the idea of a sort of preteritism then, where the first 300 years of the church was looked upon as that horrible time of persecution. And you can understand, if you were there, you could understand that kind of thinking. That we got rid of that period. Thank God for Constantine. So, that's the early form of preterism. It wasn't well thought through, it was just kind of a reaction. But now in our day, we have a very narrow, well thought through, and self-consistent type of preteritism. Basically, the preterists hold that we solve the problem of the church by having the church replace Israel and the nations. And since the church replaces it, the church has nothing to do with the tribulation. The tribulation happened and is over. Now, the question is, when did the tribulation happen? What was the fulfillment of the star? That when the armies of Rome, first under Vespasian, then under Titus, conquered Jerusalem and conquered the Jew when the, when the Palestinian problem was solved from Rome's perspective, when all that happened and the horrible suffering of the nation, that was the tribulation. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. The book of Revelation is, is all past. The book of Revelation is finished with A.D. 70. Now this may shock some of you. Maybe you've never heard of this before. But it's, it's rampant, particularly in reformed circles in this area. Coming in like a flood. And it's because so many people don't read their Bibles. And have not been taught verse by verse. So they become suckers for this kind of thing. But preteritism has a few strains to it. So what I'm going to teach now in these next few paragraphs, 
I'm going to distinguish between what we'll call the extreme preterists and the more moderate preterists. The, the moderate preterists are those who have enough respect for literal hermeneutics to say, wait a minute, you know, we may say the tribulation's passed, but we certainly can't say the second advent of Jesus is passed. So the moderates try to separate tribulation, make it pass, but kind of save out a few verses here and there to guard the second advent. Okay? The consistent preterists, which are, I feel, the logical, they are logical, and I, I can't see how the moderates are going to stay moderate. They're going to go one way or the other. The, the, the extreme preterists argue that the second advent of Christ is past. It's over. It, Christ came in 70 A.D. So, so that's the view. Now, if you will follow down the bottom, page 120, I'll go through the notes, and we may get into some verses tonight. Hopefully we will. But I've got to give you this background, because otherwise we, we lose things here. Oh, and by the way, before we go any further, futurism. What do you suppose futurism does? It says the tribulation is future. Yeah, it's yet to come. So it's preteritist or futurist. Okay, preteritism. Some students, particularly in Reformed circles, such as R.C. Sproul, have recently attempted to strengthen the amillennial or postmillennial viewpoints against the logical consistency of premillennialism. Now, I've used three words there, and you want to understand those three words. Preteritism is associated always with amillennialism or postmillennialism. Right? Take the words apart. If you don't know what the words mean, take them apart. What does millennium mean? Thousand year millennium, the kingdom of God. What does ah in front of a word always mean? Non. Theism? Atheism. It's the, it's the Greek negative. So you put an A on the front of the word and it makes the word negative. So ah millennialism means there's no millennium. Well, what do they do with the millennium past? Allegorize them. Say, non-literal hermeneutic. What does post-millennial mean? That means that the world's getting better and better, and finally we'll be such a wonderful world that Jesus can't help it, and he comes back and says, thank you, good job, you guys. That's post-millennialism. Now, both of those positions, by the way, amillennialism is inherited from what? Before the, before the Protestant Reformation. It's a carryover from Rome. So when Protestants are all millennial, they're just simply repeating Roman Catholic eschatology. All right. Preteritism will always be associated with amillennialism. You will never find a preterist pre-mill. Well, of course, maybe in California. But apart from, from places like that, you, you will have premillennialism associated with futurism because premillennialism means what? Christ comes before the millennium. Why? To set it up. Now, futurists, you can have futurists that are mill and post-mill, but the logic tends to drive them in this direction and that's why in your reform circles that have always been all-mill and post-mill, you have a receptive group for preteritism. So you want to learn the connection here. 
Okay, bottom of page 120, last sentence. The basic idea of preteritism uh, asserts that these scriptures view the fall of Jerusalem to Rome in A.D. 70 as the wrath of God against unbelieving Israel. Now, if you are sharp and you hold the place in the notes and go back to table 8, a warning bell should go off in your head right with that sentence I just read. Turn back to wherever... Uh, yes, page 114, table 8. Now, from table 8, what do we know from the Old Testament about the wrath of God on the nation Israel? Does the Old Testament look forward to a time when there's the wrath of God on Israel? Sure. That's the definition of the tribulation, isn't it? But, does the tribulation and wrath of God extinguish Israel or purge Israel. It's designed to what? Purge Israel, not extinguish it. So, knowing that and that history, when you come back to page 121 on the top and you see the sentence, the wrath of God against unbelieving Israel, they think of that as the last chapter in Israel's existence. But you see where that clashes with the Old Testament because the Old Testament doesn't look upon the tribulation as a, it's a horrible time, but it's not the last chapter, it's the next to the last chapter. But preteritism argues that it is the last chapter Israel is done with. Okay. Now the next paragraph on page 121. What does preteritism do with the Old Testament texts that underlie the New Testament texts? And in the few minutes we have left, if you will start turning in these verses. Let's turn to Matthew 24, 29. This is Jesus' discourse on the Mount of Olives as he and the disciples looked across the Kidron Valley at the temple. And Jesus is talking to the disciples, and he says, in verse 29... Now, we could go to a lot of verses. I'm, I'm in the interest of time. And as I say, please don't think of Thursday night class here with all this stuff as a course in eschatology. A course in eschatology could take two or three years. I'm doing a very fast review to get you through the material so you get some sort of a handle, you learn the vocabulary, and you kind of learn, learn why at least I and, and most of the people you'll hear teach premillennial pre-tribulationism. Matthew 24:29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of heaven will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Now, if you have a steady Bible, you will notice that verse 29 is cited out of the Old Testament, isn't it? See there? as a verse from Isaiah should have verse from Isaiah. That verse is coming out of the Old Testament. Jesus is, is teaching an elaborated version, a more detailed version, of what the Old Testament taught. He's not teaching something radically different. He's quoting from the Old Testament here. Now, if you have a study Bible, you'll also see 
that that same verse that Jesus quotes here about the sun and the moon turning dark is in Revelation chapter 6. See? So in the book of Revelation chapter 6, you have this big day of the wrath of God and the kings of the earth get together. In fact, let's just turn there so you can get the flavor of this. Re uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. This is a picture of the Lord Jesus. And he's breaking the seals. Because he has earned, at this point, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is ascended where? He sits at the right hand of the Father. He is perfect. He has completed his mission. And he is now qualified to break those seals. And in verse 12... I looked, and he broke the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and said to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, that's the picture. And it's not a new one in the New Testament. It comes out of Isaiah. So, the question then is, if in the Old Testament, the Isaiah and the other people had that one promise, and they looked upon the sun and the moon and the stars and the earthquake, this, all this stuff, and they saw that as part of a tribulation to purge Israel so that Israel would go through this and eventually come to the kingdom, then you would think that that's exactly what Jesus was teaching. Because Jesus doesn't change it. If he were to change it, he would say, now, Isaiah said this, but I say unto you, he did that in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Why isn't he doing it here? And by not doing it, he is presuming, and you presume as a reader, that he means exactly what Isaiah meant. So, what do the preterists do with this? Well, if you follow page 121. Now, I know those of you who have read the Bible and you're Bible students for some time, it's hard for you to get your mind into this. I mean, how can people do this? I know that. But people have done it, so we have to understand where they're coming from. Watch this. Matthew 24, 29, with Revelation 6, 12, and 14, speak of the same catastrophic events as Isaiah 13, and I could mention other verses. The great tribulation judgments falling upon the world that figures so prominently in the Old Testament view of Israel's history. Stars falling and the sun not giving its light, according to preterist interpreters, are figures of speech that depict the fall of a nation or a kingdom. When such terms occur in the New Testament, their reasoning goes, they refer to the fall of the nation Israel for its rejection of Jesus. 
In this fashion, preternaturalism carries out the same metaphorical interpretation methodology advocated centuries ago by Augustine. Augustine's name begins with A, and it's therefore easy to remember that he is the father of what kind of millennialism? Amillennialism. So you got a, you've got a memory hook there. Augustine's name begins with A, and amillennialism begins with A, and Augustine was the great proponent of amillennialism. He was the guy that got rid of premillennialism in the early church. So the pieces start falling together here. And he was also the advocate of metaphorical interpretation of prophecy. See? He changed the hermeneutic, how you interpret these prophetic passages. Augustine was responsible for replacing the premillennial viewpoint of the early church with the amillennial viewpoint under the influence of Greek philosophy that demeaned physical forms. Those of you who have studied Greek philosophy, some of you maybe, the Greeks despised physical form. They always thought of imperfection. Let me give you an example of why they did that. Uh, most people here, have you ever taken a course in plain geometry, you know? and you define things, and you have theorems and axioms, and you define a triangle as a good example, you can define a perfect triangle. What bothered the Greeks was you never could find one in reality. Because no matter how carefully you drew one, it would always have shaky lines in it, or it would have some imperfection in it. So their argument was that perfection could only be thought about, but never experienced. And they carried this, and you, we can do critique on that sometime. But the point is, Greek thought led down the road to the fact that spiritually, if you were ever to attain spiritual perfection, it would be in your soul minus your body. The body was the source of contamination. So since premillennialism believes in what kind of a kingdom? Physical kingdom. And what kind of bodies do people have in the millennial kingdom? Natural bodies. You can't have a spiritual kingdom with people in natural bodies. You see the connection? That's why Augustine threw out the idea of the millennium. Because influenced by Greek philosophy, he thought perfection had to be only perceived in the mind, in the soul, in the spirit, but not in the body. The body was a sword. You never could find a perfect triangle. You could never find a perfect person in the body. So anyway, under the influence of Greek philosophy that demeaned physical forms and flushed with the recent capitulation of mighty Rome to Christianity, Augustine built upon earlier allegorical interpretation to deny the literal and physical nature of the millennial kingdom. And then in the next paragraph I describe the older forms of preteritism. Early preterism generally viewed the first few centuries of church history as fulfilling prophecy from the fall of Jerusalem to the rise of persecutions under Nero and other emperors variously seen as the Antichrist to the fall of pagan Rome under Christianity in Constantine's day. Today's preterism, however, insists that most, if not all, New Testament prophecy was fulfilled in the first century with its fall of Jerusalem and the Neronian persecutions. Nero preceded A.D. 70. He was 63 or something like that. That's why they say, remember in the book of Revelation, they talk about five kings or four kings, and one is going to raise from the dead and so on. And there was a rumor in Rome that you know, Nero was so bad. I mean, this guy was, was Saddam Hussein multiplied. And he was so bad that when he finally died, nobody could believe that he would stay dead. And so there was this rumor in, in Roman history 
that, you know, look under the table. You know, Nero might, might come up here someday. And so when they saw in the book of Revelation, talking about the king that would be wounded and returning, they identified that with Nero. Okay? So prejudice isn't completely divorced from scholarship here. That's what I'm trying to show you. So our time is running out, so I just want to finish this, this paragraph. Today's preterism insists that most, if not all, New Testament prophecy was fulfilled in the first century with fall of Jerusalem and the Neronian persecutions. In other words, Nero becomes sort of their antichrist. Today's preterist must insist, therefore... Now, here's a very important point, and you want to asterisk this in your notes and mark it. Today's preterist must insist that the book of Revelation was written prior to A.D. 70. Why do they have to do that? Because it's about this, this thing and its prophecy. So, if it's prophecy, and the prophecy's already been fulfilled... The book that's prophesying had to be written before the event. But if the event is A.D. 70, then Revelation has to be early. We now live in the kingdom age. Preteritism is thus bound logically, theologically, and hermeneutically to amillennialism or postmillennialism. It cannot coexist with premillennialism. And if you look at, at the text on page 121... Uh, 122, and there's a mess on, I changed printers on page 122 to 123, so you'll see that little mark um, halfway down page 122 to the right, and it says go to the next page. Well, if you go to the next page, you'll see that, that the printer took the next paragraph and reprinted it again, so that's the connection. Um, we're going to, preteritism in the notes goes all the way over to page 125. So if you want to read ahead, that's the area. And we'll go through next time, we're going to go through the texts that Book of Revelation, uh, that uh, Preteritism picks up and argues that they are the literal interpreters of some texts and we're the ones that are metaphorically interpreting. Father, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for your plan of history. May you guide us to properly understand their plan and to apply it in our lives. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, we have uh, some time here for a question and answer. We've got some of it eaten up. But um, George, you want to start? Yeah. Um, when you were talking about uh, Constantine being 
valorize things. Um, Augustine, what did I say? Oh, Augustine. Got the first teen wrong. <laughs> Where does Orion or Arjun or however you Okay, good question. I meant, uh, it's emphasized Augustine, the role of introducing amelianism into the church through allegorical hermeneutics. He actually picked up some of his allegorical and hermeneutics from Origen. But think about it. Where was Origen? He was in Alexandria. And Alexandria, along with Athens, was one of the great intellectual centers in the Eastern Mediterranean. And it was a center of... of of the, great, the Hellenistic culture too, because the Jews that lived in Alexandria uh, three or four hundred years, two or three hundred years before Christ, I'll ask my seminary student because I've forgotten. When was the Septuagint like, translated? You remember? When was it, you know, this LXX? Forgot. Into the Greek. Into the Greek. Yeah, wasn't it three or four hundred BC, or was it that far back? Two hundred, maybe. Yeah. Okay. The point is, in Alexandria, where all this was going on, that's the place where the Jews, <clears throat> um, many of them, really probably lost their Hebrew, and they Greek was the common language, so they wanted a quote modern translation, and that's how the Septuagint got started because they translated the Old Testament to Greek. And really, it's nice they did, because now that tells us how Greek words were used versus Hebrew, so it's a good vocabulary source. But anyway, later on, after Christ, after a century or two, this guy Origen showed up. And Origen, again, under Greek philosophy, um, he really started a lot of allegorical hermeneutics. Wasn't he also a, a bit older when he came to Christ? Not sure of that. Probably. Well, what you want to see in, in these men is Origen and Augustine were brilliant men and probably motivated to try to help the church. Uh, if you were to walk up to Augustine, for example, uh, Augustine would be shocked probably to see the results of his own thinking. Uh, Augustine did some wonderful things. He wrote, those of you in classic books, one of the classic books of the Western civilization is, is The City of God. And Augustine wrote that. And it's a book that really we should all read because it's a, it's a meditation from, by a Christian who, who saw the collapse of Rome and had to come to grips with the fact that the Christians were blamed largely for the collapse of Rome. Um, the, 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 the Christians were the people who refused to worship Caesar. And you can imagine if you were a pagan and you have this rising group of these people who refused to worship the emperor, um, I, wouldn't you come to the conclusion that these people are dangerous and now our society's falling apart and here come the Vandals and the Visigoths and everybody else and, you know, let's go after the Christians. And Augustine stood up to that and he answered them and that's why he's famous and well known for doing that and he was also a very good in the sovereignty of God Augustine had some great ideas the problem is he also had some pretty crummy ideas and 
this was one of them, this allegorical business. He thought what he was doing was saving the church from being um, filled with falsehoods, naive falsehoods. And the other thing that Augustine did, which I haven't mentioned, uh, was the thing that he was the one who first preached the supremacy of the Roman church. In other words, Augustine went so far as to say, I believe, somewhere, that he did not believe anybody was saved unless they were members of the church at Rome, meaning that other bishop pricks elsewhere uh, that were not connected intimately with the city of Rome uh, were not really Christian. So Augustine, in one sense, was the father of certain ideas of the Reformation in his strong view of sovereignty, but he was also the father of Roman Catholicism, of all things. And he was the one that tied in the church with amillennialism, and, and so the Protestant reformers never, never really dealt with him on that basis. So what you see today that goes under the term Rome, uh, Reformed Christianity is only partially reformed. It's reformed soteriologically, but it's not reformed in the other areas. So, yeah, the answer is hermeneutic, allegorical hermeneutics have a long background. There was a Jew by the name of Philo who did the same thing. So you have a long history of this, this fanciful... Well, what it more is is that we are more intellectual. The common people take those parables literally, but we see the deeper principles in it, that kind of attitude to the text. Now, no, they, everywhere, but, you know, but then you talked about how he uses those as pictures. What keeps that from sliding into the allegory? Okay. I get, I get messed up there. All right, all right. A lot of people do. And, and, but the question concerns the fact there are obvious figures of speech in the Bible. Now, just let me start with just this observation. If you go into a, a, a Christian bookstore that is... is got some classic books to it, or if you look in Christian book distributors or whatever that catalog is, you should see sometime a work by, the, by, the, by an author called Bullinger. And I forgot the name of the book, but it's on metaphor. Figures of Speech in the Bible, I believe it is called. And you know what the funny thing is? Bullinger was a dispensationalist. And he wrote the classic text on figures of speech. And this book is filled, filled. I mean, you know, today, you just marvel at what these men were able to do before they had a computer. I mean, you'd think that we would be the productive people, but we spend too much of our time reading emails to get any serious work done. Those guys didn't have email. And so, therefore, they had the ability, hour after hour, to get these classic works built. Bollinger has thousands of, of references, detailed classifications, subclassification of figures of speech. Okay? So, I, I want to throw that out to start with, because if Bollinger is the father of classifying figures, figurative speech, and he's a literal hermeneutic, 
How do you put that one together? Well, obviously, they must not be in collision. And here's the, here's the problem. God has created the world in such a way that in numerous ways, there's a repetitiveness in his designs. For example, um, most mammals have four feet. All of them, I guess, have four feet. Why do they have four feet? Uh, they all have four feet. Well, why is that? It's because it's a good design. It's repeated. Um, you see in physics, you see things where you have chains of energy that cascade on different scales. For example, when you cook a pot of water, um, if you look in the, when the water starts boiling down the pot, you see big bubbles and little bubbles and so on, and, and you, you have all this convectiveness in the fluid of different scales. Now, it turns out, interestingly, that if you study the hydrodynamics of the small little bubbles, they look exactly like the hydrodynamics of the big bubbles, which looks like the hydrodynamics of some parts of the universe. Well, why is this repetitiveness all the way? Um, if you look at the seeds of a sunflower, the way rabbits reproduce, and certain Greek architecture, they all have the same geometric ratio. The golden, golden rectangle, golden triangle, uh, which are Fibonacci numbers. And God has repeatedly put Fibonacci numbers in the creation. Now, he must have liked Fibonacci numbers. I don't know why he did it, but he has these forms. When you go and you see the visions of the angels, it's always remarkable to me since I have a veterinarian son, who we talk about animals and their place in the creation a lot. Um, I always told him, you know, animals can be looked upon as being designed after the angels and not the other way around. The angels are often pictured with animal parts, but actually it, the animals are made of angelic parts, um, you, the, if you reverse the cycle here. Now, why do angels have wings? Uh, and birds have wings? I believe that since all creation is revelatory, that where you have these features Literally, you first have to start all texts on a literal basis. Then you decide, are we dealing with a figure, or are we, are we dealing with a parable, or are we dealing with a literal prophecy? And we're dealing here with literary issues. So, figures of speech are legitimate literary issues, and we see Jesus using these. Why do we not then carry this figuration over to prophecy? Let's just think about that for a minute. Let's go back to what we discussed a couple of nights, a couple of Thursdays, uh, nights ago. The Bible, one of its foundational structures is that of the covenant. Now, the word covenant doesn't catch us too well because we are all schooled up here in our head to get very religious when we hear the word covenant. Now, a good way of disarming that defense on yourself is every time you see the word covenant, replace it with the word contract. And think of your mortgage, your car loan. Now, when you deal with a contract document, what are some features in a contract? They're always there. First of all, you have legal parties that enter into a contract. What is the purpose of a contract? 
to govern and calibrate and measure behavior, is it not? Is the bank interested in your economic behavior when you've taken a loan from them? I think so. Now, next question. When you see that mortgage contract or the loan agreement, how do you interpret it? Literally or allegorically? I mean, you know, I mean, to ask the question is to answer it. Nobody. And by the way, how long does the literal hermeneutic stand in place? As long as the contract stands. Because the contract presumes a conservation of the hermeneutic over the period of performance of the contract. Wouldn't it be lovely if we could all interpret certain clauses in our mortgage contract allegorically? But, but and nobody in his right mind would do this in any business contract. Yet the same word covenant taken over to the scriptures, all of a sudden we get greasy. We want to allegorize it. What do we want to allegorize it for? We don't do that to other contracts. Why are we doing it to God's contract for? Never see the logic in this. The reason we want to allegorize it is because it gives us theological problems. The reason we want to allegorize these prophecies of the kingdom is because they teach a view of nature that is utterly opposed to that which is around us. Why did Peter say? What was the agenda, the spiritual agenda behind denial? of the second advent of Christ according to Peter. Remember what he said? They are willingly ignorant. Not innocently ignorant, not accidentally ignorant, but willingly ignorant that the world of the heavens and the earth which was, was once was, was changed and destroyed, and now the heavens and the earth which are, are grounded on fire like the others were grounded on water. I mean, I don't know how you want to interpret 2 Peter 3, but that's a very radical passage. That teaches something about the fundamental structure of the universe there. And it says it's, it's a house of cards. And all God has to do is reach down and he can start the self-destruction process. And what we thought were these inviolable laws of physics, what we thought were all these predictable entities are going to really blow up our equations are going to blow up because the equations themselves presume uniformity, which is, uh, that operates fine as long as the contract is in place. See, there is a uniformity in the contracts. Think about Noah's contract. What was the uniformity in Noah's contract? God made a contract with Noah, and who else, by the way? Interesting point. The Noahic contract was not made with just man is made with every living thing. Your dog is a party to the Abrahamic contract. Your cat, your guinea pig, whatever, um, is, is, they're all part and parcel of this Noahic contract. Now, I don't know what animals think of contracts, but the point I'm making is that God has an ecological contract that says certain things will behave the way they will in the physical universe, and one of them is that the world will never be flooded again. Now, you know what that tells me? That God has to control the moon, the planets, and all the stars. Why is that? Because if they get out of orbit, and their gravitational field interferes with our gravitational field, what's going to happen to the oceans? They're going to be pulled over the continents. 
So the Noahic contract implies a totality of physical sovereignty over the universe. Because you can keep extending that. How do you stay the planet's going to stay in orbit? When you could think of a star might move out of some place in the Milky Way and come close to our sun and rip the planets off. So then God not only has to stabilize the planets, he has to stabilize the Milky Way. Well, then the Milky Way could be destabilized by another galaxy out from that. So you work your way out logically until you consume the whole physical universe. All because God made one promise to a man in a boat. But you see the the logic of how it triggers off a line of reasoning. And God wants us to trigger that line of reasoning. So when you hit these covenants, and that's what we're dealing with in prophecy. When you read that, that verse that we cited in Matthew tonight about the sun and the moon, Ultimately, how is that related back to a contract? It's related back to the contract God made with Israel. And he promised those things as judgments against Israel and the nations persecuting Israel. Now, why are they literal and not figurative? Why aren't they figures of a nation just falling? Why are they literally, physically correct? Well, think about the pagan mind. When those contracts were made, what were some things that the pagans worshipped? The ones that didn't worship Jehovah God. The stars, the sun, and the moon. And what is the great story in the Old Testament of one powerful superpower pagan nation whose leader defied the living God? and was brought to his knees and his nation by a series of judgments against those parts of nations that he worshipped. The Exodus. Now with the Exodus record, during those Exodus judgments, was there darkness in the land at one point? The sun not give its light? Not only did the sun not give its light, But it was a supernatural thing because the darkness wasn't in the areas of the Jews. It was only in the areas of the pagans. So not only do we have a weird astronomical phenomena, but we have it doubly weird because it was, was, uh, to cite a favorite lawyer's word today and politician's word, it discriminated. See? So with the Exodus record, And with a contract, how else do you interpret those passages? Can you get away with allegorizing them? I can't, because it's part of a contract. Is there really any allegorical passages in Scripture? Sure, Paul in Galatians talks about Jerusalem as an allegory. He's using Jerusalem allegorically there to interpret the principle of law. There are some allegorical passages in the Scriptures. Yeah. Okay, well, our time is is up. Yes, Tommy. Oh, one more. I can understand how the uh, how early, you know, back, you know, 300, 400 um, AD, they could be looking at the trough that they just came out of and call that the tribulation. And now maybe this is the millennium, the start of the millennium. Uh, I don't understand the surge of belief in it now. When some of the prophecies about Israel have been literally fulfilled, um, like you know the nation of Israel coming back to the land, and you know it almost seems like you almost have to 
It's almost like somebody finding the presence in their parents' closet and still trying to believe in Santa Claus, you know, trying to justify that. Um, well, Debbie, Debbie's asked a good question, is that how, you know, in the early church history, you would have thought, you could have just half-justified a preterist impulse by saying, well, gee, whew, you know, you're getting rid of that period. That's gone away. Um, but what do you do today, where you have Israel coming back to the land and so on? I think it's precisely Israel coming back to the land that has triggered this. Because in their mentality, any, any apparent drift of history toward fulfilled prophecy of Israel is a threat theologically. And if they're, the, the, the main bugaboo in the text to an amillennial position and a postmillennial position, particularly a postmillennial position, and by the way, many of the preterists are, are postmillennialists, not just amillennialists. In the postmillennialist, what does the postmillennial believe in? He believes that the church has taken over in such a way that it is the kingdom of God that's going to conquer. And then Jesus comes back to end history. Okay? Post-millennial. Jesus comes post after the millennium. The church age is the millennium. Well, now, if you believe that, think about it. What on earth are you going to do with all the texts that talk about tribulation as a future event? See, a future tribulation blocks post-millennialism, logically speaking. So if you're a convinced post-millennialist, you've got to get rid of the roadblock. Well, that's a very good device of doing it. And that, I believe, is what's happening here. They, they're trying to make their system more consistent, but it's more consistently wrong. But it's more consistent. They've got to get rid of the roadblocks to an open future for the church. And they believe that we believe a closed future. The church is, is going to just shrink away and do nothing and become insignificant. That's not what we're saying. It's, it's, but it's their view of what we believe. So in order to get rid of the roadblock to the future, they want to somehow deal with all these pessimistic scripture passages. And what finer way, if I'm a post-millennialist, to put it in back of me? That gets rid of the roadblock in front of me, doesn't it? And that's the function, theologically, what preteritism does. Okay, we'll see you next week.